I always talk about rewatchability. If afterwards I say to myself, would I want to go see this movie? Virtuoso filmmaking by Scorsese. It's some of the best work he's done. Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast. Major breaking news. I want to say it's been a long time this has happened, but I don't think it's ever happened. I have a secret admirer. Great to have you with us here in Cinephile. I'm Adnan Burke. I just had a birthday. I turned 38. Booker McFarlane, by the way, told me I look great. He didn't think a day over 35. When you get to these ages, every year makes a difference. So I'll take that. Regardless, I go to my mailbox here at ESPN, and there is a huge package. And I open it up, and it is a gorgeous Martin Scorsese coffee table book by Tom Schoen. It's like 300 pages. Like, it's incredibly detailed, glossy pictures and the print. I'm like, this is exquisite. So immediately, I, I figured it was my wife that had sent to me. She didn't give me anything for my birthday. So I text her, and I go, hey, Scorsese book. And she goes, uh, yeah, I know there's a book out, but I didn't, you know. I'm like, oh, so you didn't? No. Oh, okay. Next thought, got to be Stanzik. So I text my boy Stanzik, and all I put was Scorsese book question mark as a test. Because not that Stanzik would lie, but I'm like, let me just throw it out there. And you wrote back to me, I'm currently reading the CAA book, but yes, I'd be down to read some Marty. Well, I, you normally you give me books to read, so I assumed that you were saying, hey, would you read this book? Because I think our previous conversation was, hey, have you read the books I got you for your birthday? And I said, no, I have not. Right. So I don't know who did this. I, I even took a picture of it and tweeted it out and go, listen, thank you for your incredible generosity. Who is this wonderful person that sent this to me? And nobody's responded. So I don't know. Please fess up. Like This has got to be at least 100 bucks. It's an awesome present. I'm going to crush it. I'm going to Williamsport shortly. I'm, every night I'm going to be reading Scorsese stories. Now we've got boatloads of them now. You know what? Have you checked with Rosillo? You think Rosillo got it for me? He's gotten you a book in the past. That's correct? a good point. Yeah. And he hasn't been here. So sending it to you there actually makes sense. I think it might have been Rosillo. Okay. All right. Well, at least we have a lead now. As the cops say, at least we have a lead on this. Might have been Ryan Rosillo, but we'll try to get to the bottom of who it was. Uh, we've got a great podcast today. Would have been even better if all of our guests had come through. This is a peril of the business. We don't find this as much, or maybe Stanzik does when he works on Mike and Mike, uh, his regular gig. But I, I find generally when you have a guest in the world of sports, athletes come and we're good to go. Uh, unfortunately, this week we had three big-time guests booked. And all three <laughs> canceled. I, I want to say I don't take it personally, but when you go 0 for 3, that's a tough 0 for 3. So hopefully we'll get them back at some point. They all feel terrible about it. Should uh, we name names? Should we? Uh, let's go for it. I mean, it would have been a great podcast. Now you're just stuck with us. Monday we were supposed to have Usher, which uh, Stanzik has put out the fact that, yeah, maybe the, the dominant song of the 2000s, which I'm perfectly fine with. So we could have asked him about that. He's going to be in Hands of Stone, De Niro's new movie. So I think he would have been a good guest. We were going to have Cuba Gooding Jr. I mean, Jerry Maguire, The OJ Show, Boat Trip, Men of Honor, you name it. Radio. Radio. <laughs> Lots to get into. As good as it gets. Um, he unfortunately canceled. And then Josh Demel, who we gave a rave review uh, to Spaceman, and we had Ron Shelton on the previous podcast. Demel, falling through his wall here. So I think you got to remove like half a maple leaf from that movie review now. I think you're right. Like There has to be some sort of punitive action here taken because of the fact he was not available to us. Thank you so much to those who listened last time. It's always interesting what seems to gain resonance or feedback, and generally it's the guest. I mean, people wanted to, to hear from Vigo Mortensen and Ron Shelton. They were both great. But I'm telling you, a lot of people interested in the verdict, either had not seen it in a long time, went and watched it again, 
or hadn't seen it, discovered it and said, hey, thanks so much for recommending it. I went back and watched, uh, sorry, read Ebert's review. I, I talked, in case you missed the previous podcast, the great last shot. It's an open-ended shot. Uh, Paul Newman plays an alcoholic lawyer given the one last case to redeem himself. Script by David Mamet. Sidney Lumet directed it. came out in 1982. The last shot of the film after he wins the case is Newman drinking from a coffee cup. And you don't know if he's actually drinking coffee or he's still drinking booze. Ebert in his review says he is drinking still and said the lesson of the film is that if you wash it down with alcohol, victory still tastes like defeat. I mean, that's that's as good as it gets. Dare I say that that ending is almost like the inception of today? <laughs> is the top still spinning? <laughs> you know what? Why not? I think we can go with that. Christopher Nolan, Sidney Lumet, two great directors and two great open-ended finishes. All right, let's get to the movies that are out there right now. So Suicide Squad opens. Stanzik actually sends me one of these reviews, and there are many of them, just torching the film. I didn't get to it right away, so I waited about a week, and then I went and saw it. And the first 20 minutes is decent. You go, all right, they're introducing each character, and they're kind of, you know, playing to the audience with these typical musical soundtracks, and, you know, each character gets a little bit of a backstory. But I'm like, this is pretty good so far. I don't, I'm curious why the critics were torching this so poorly. Margot Robbie's fantastic, very sassy, and she plays Harley Quinn, who is the, the Joker's lover. And she, I mean, I wouldn't say she steals the movie, but she's fantastic. There's not nearly enough Joker in the movie. The whole question is going to be, how is Jared Leto? And he's really good in the film. He's chilling. He's creepy. He's different than Heath Ledger and Jack Nicholson, which I think is the biggest challenge in your plan this role. Do you make it your own? And I think he did, but he's just not in it enough. He's barely 20 minutes. And whenever you see him, it's like a one scene and out. So not really enough of him. As the movie progresses, though, the plot is just dreadful. Like if you watch this movie, even if you love comic books, even if you love superheroes, even if you love the idea of this, which I think the idea is great. You take all these bad guys, put them together and have one goal. The plot is dreadful. Like you literally get these characters together and then just nothing happens. There's a couple action sequences. And the longer it goes, the more terrible it becomes. At one point, about the hour 40 mark, one of the characters says, her heart's out. We can end this thing. And I'm like, I feel that way about this movie. Can we just end this thing now? Like, God, it's it's interminable towards the end. It's just groaning towards the conclusion. So honestly, most of the film, it was a two Maple Leaf movie. But by the end, I got no one Maple Leaf. Shame on you, David Ayer, the writer and director, for not making a better movie, for squandering this talent. Anish Shroff texted me and goes, well, how was Will Smith? I'm like, well, he was fine. Like, he was perfectly adequate. The character didn't have much depth to it. And he was okay. But you're not going to see this for Will Smith. You're going to see this because of the whole concept of it and all the stars involved. And it's just, honestly, it's it's a enormous disappointment considering all the hype behind it. So I'm with all the people that uh, saw it and didn't like it. Sanzik, have you seen it? I did, and everyone kind of loves Margot Robbie, and I think they only think she was good because she's attractive. <laughs> if she was not an attractive person, I don't think there'd be these slight rave reviews for her. Yeah. Furthermore, total spoiler alert here, but throughout the movie, you think like four characters die, and then the movie concludes, and they're all still alive. And you're like, how did that happen? <laughs> like, I watched you die. The, the but, ending is egregious. Oh, like, think about where this story could have gone. And I'm like, you've got this terrible, like, with the basic with these movies, you got to have a good villain. The villain was terrible. The CGI was bad. Like, for the amount of money this thing cost. They tried really hard to be funny, too, with this, like, alligator-like character. Yeah. It was not funny at all. Well, how about the one line, the one, Margot Robbie, because the guy, they're in the bar, and he says, you know, you're, you're gorgeous in the outside, but you're ugly on the inside. And she goes, we're all like that, except for him. He's ugly on the outside, too. Terrible. <laughs> How how embarrassing were the musical choices? Like just catering to the audience, like with Eminem's, you know, guess who's back? And then they're all strapping the character. I'm like, it's so obvious. 
it's obvious, but it was like almost delightful because everything else was so bad. I was like, oh, I know that song. Oh, like, Spirit of the Sky. Like, All right, I'll tell you what, I think I'd get more enjoyment listening to the soundtrack than from watching the movie. Yeah, I would agree with that. It was definitely a huge disappointment. How much of um, your desire to see this film was based on the fact you're the producer of Cinephile? 100%. <laughs> We've talked about this before, and you've mentioned how you don't want to see these terrible movies, but you end up doing it. And you said, well, now I have a movie podcast. And so I thought to myself, like, we'll probably be reviewing Suicide Squad, so maybe maybe I should check it out. And I'm pretty sure you have a story about Suicide Squad that you have not gotten to yet, and that is kind of what sold me on going. Uh, I'm not sure what we're referring to. I think there was some oh, gifts sorry, involved. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Sorry, sorry, I'm so sorry. So the backstory of Jared Leto on this, you know, the, the stories always come out about how these guys are method actors and they're so into it. So apparently he was so into it, trying to play the Joker and being unhinged and being creepy and being off kilter. He sent Margot Robbie a gift of a dead rat at one point, And then to a member of the crew, as if that wasn't enough, just to inspire some disgust from your coworkers. He left, and they're not naming who it was for whom, but Jared Leto left one of the members of Suicide Squad a used condom. Could you imagine, wherever you are right now at your job, just being off for the day, and then somebody who fills in for you leaves a used condom? How reprehensible is that? Like, on what level would you just go, oh, yeah, that's just Leto. Like, he's a method actor. He just gets really into it. Wait, what? No, no, it's not just a condom. It's a used condom. Like, that is just... Disgusting. Vile on so many levels. I told the story last time about Dustin Hoffman, method actor, running all night because his character in Marathon Man is sleep deprived and in great shape. That's method acting. Okay, Pacino on the set of Dog Day Afternoon, as Lumet said, if the character had to be a raving lunatic, then offset, Pacino was yelling at people, the catering staff, he wanted to stay like that all the time. If he was sad in that scene we were shooting, he'd be sad offset. That's method acting. Jared Leto sending a used condom to a member of the crew to be like, hey, look at I'm the Joker, I'm unpredictable. I'm like, no, no, that is, this is gross. You're just a weird guy. Can we just not do that next time? Suicide Squad gets one maple leaf. We continue. Everybody wants some. Baseball movie from Richard Linklater. A lot of baseball movies this year. I saw it. I enjoyed it. Uh, when it comes to the Linklater spectrum of whether or not I'm a, a diehard fan, meaning I think Dazed and Confused is one of the greatest movies of all time, or I like his work, but I don't necessarily love it, I'm on that spectrum, which is a boyhood I thought was wonderful, and I thought um, was his greatest film, and I thought it was an enormous achievement beyond just the, the chutzpah to actually have this idea of filming a year in this kid's life and then telling that story. I actually thought it was a great dramatic film and, and really impactful. But overall, I like his work. I, I do think he's very earnest, and I like the fact he's always reaching for things. Waking Life was a really bold venture in terms of making an animated film. The Before Sunrise trilogy, again, to base so much on conversation and dialogue in today's films that have so much CGI. I do think Lick Later is trying something different. And everybody wants some. I liked it. I thought it was a good movie. I mean, it's it's kind of a companion piece to Dazed and Confused, and that it literally is just a bunch of guys just going out there. Um, it's based on Linklater's own experiences. He played on the college baseball team at Texas. Um, so it's based on his experiences. And it's just a bunch of guys uh, in the early 80s just trying to go out, score with the ladies. Uh, great soundtrack. My Sharona, all the ones you'd expect. Yep, there's another one. Van Halen, here we go, Panama. Like You, you can pretty much write the, connect the dots on the musical choices. Um, but, yeah, I thought it was an enjoyable film. I think definitely if you've been a part of a college baseball team or been in that world, it's very light, it's breezy, it's effortless. I did think it was lacking substance, and I did think the ending was a little weak. Like it, if you're going to have movies like that, I'm going to show you a slice of life, 80s nostalgia. The, there was an element to it where I was like, well, what is the point of this? Like, 
Like, I got it. It's kind of fun and it's goofy and these guys got these terrible mustaches. But I'm like, but why Why did you make this two-hour film about your college baseball team from three decades ago? Like, there's nothing groundbreaking here with a director who has oftentimes been groundbreaking with his work, particularly with Boyhood. So I liked it. I gave it two and a half Maple Leafs. Again, if you like baseball, if you like Linklater, that's one to recommend. Youth is another film I saw with Michael Caine and Harvey Keitel. This came out last year. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. The Swiss Alps cinematography alone is incredible. The great Morley Safer, who passed away, Toronto's own, longtime correspondent on 60 Minutes, they told stories of the fact Morley would always look for stories that would take him abroad. So he'd find these unusual eccentric stories taking place in Italy or Spain, just because that way he could actually go and travel. And I thought of that while watching Youth, because it's a, it's a good film. It's about a legendary music composer played by Michael Caine, who's now in the, the autumn of his life, and he's just composing, and he's off a retreat in the Swiss Alps with Harvey Keitel, who plays an American director who's his long-lost friend. Rachel Weisz is in the film, uh, Keitel's daughter in the movie. And I just kept thinking, like, that Paolo Sorrentino, the director, probably like, you know what? Here's the hook, boys. We're going to shoot this in the Swiss Alps. Like, it's gorgeous cinematography. You see them walking around and ruminating about life, and it's just, it takes you away into that world. And I thought, you know, it's particularly Kane, he really gives you a master class in acting. He shows that this guy who has these regrets, who was not a very good husband, who was too career-obsessed, and how it's affected him now. And he does so in the way that Michael Kane does, which is very subtle and very understated. I always think of Phil Hartman, who one time on Leno said this Michael Kane impression, which Tim Kirkjian is in love with. He says, if you want to talk like Michael Caine, you must only say a few words at a time. And then they've actually got the English actors on that. Uh, I can't remember. Uh, it's uh, Steve Coogan. He does the one where he goes, Michael Caine used to talk like this in the 1960s. Yeah, lots of bluster and bravado. But now he talks very, very slowly. Master Wayne. Bruce. And he gets a shaky voice. Don't you do that to me. So Michael Caine, check out youth. <laughs> uh, by the way, I met somebody the other day who didn't know who Michael Caine was. I go, what? I go, I just saw this movie called Youth of Michael Caine. They go, who's Michael Caine? 25-year-old makeup artist here. I'm like, Gotta how do go you go Alfred. Right, I just go Alfred, Batman. Like, no? Dirty Rotten Scoundrels? Hannah and her sister? Hannah, thank you. Stan's a cinephile. Cider House Rules? Cider House Rules Academy Award winner. Like, come on. Didn't know who he was. Uh, Ice Age, I'm not going to say much about. I saw it for the kids. Uh, I'm giving it a generous two Maple Leafs. It's amazing. We had Dennis Leary here, and he was telling us that like, Ice Age is the highest-grossing franchise of all time. We'll have to check the numbers on it, but the, I, don't, I don't think that's accurate, but they've made five of these things now, and I hope that's it. I mean, it's just bankrupt of all ideas at this point, and zero creativity beyond the fact that Scrat's still looking for his acorn, and you've got you know Romano just going through the motions. There's really not much here to recommend unless you're just desperate for some animated movies and really love Ice Age. The movie I want to talk about, though, and this will get really geeky here with the cinephile talk, is Hitchcock Truffaut. This film came out last December, and it's about Alfred Hitchcock and a conversation he had with Francois Truffaut, who was one of the French New Wave directors of the 1960s. And this group, he and Jean-Luc Godard, Jean-Luc Godard rather, most notably, um, were critics, and they loved American cinema, and then they themselves became directors. Truffaut made The 400 Blows, which is semi-autobiographical, uh, based upon a kid who's you know, overcoming a really tough childhood. It's one of the great films about adolescence. And Godard, of course, made Breathless, which is so influential towards directors like Scorsese and Coppola because it's a crime film, but it used jump cuts and the style with which it was made, a lot of handheld camera. Godard is very influential. So whenever you talk to American directors of a certain age, they'll always mention the French New Wave and Truffaut and Godard. But what's notable is that Truffaut, like I said, before he became a director, 
was actually a film critic. And one of the guys that they championed was Alfred Hitchcock. And Hitchcock, earlier in his career for American audiences, was not viewed as the greatest director of all time. He was viewed as this guy who made mainstream movies, the director of suspense, a uh, master of suspense, but wasn't a guy that the elites really loved. They just thought he made mainstream films that didn't, didn't necessarily have a lot to them. Truffaut and Godard completely disagreed and said, no, listen, this guy's brilliant. And in Europe, Truffaut's, uh, Hitchcock's films were treated with much more with the art with which they are because it's an incredible collage of films when you look at them. Like, I mean, there's masterpiece after masterpiece, and they recognize that. So this movie is about a conversation Truffaut had with Hitchcock. So they go back and they play audio from the conversation, and it's just interesting to hear Hitchcock talking about motivations and certain scenes in his films. But what really makes it great, of course – Martin Scorsese is interviewed at length, as is Richard Linklater, as is David Fincher. Um, and they all talk about Hitchcock and the influence and those movies on them. And just to throw one out there, because I, I adore Vertigo. I think it's, it's such an incredible movie. We do three words, and we're going to do it later on in the show. And Stanzik's three words for me, what were they again? Canada, movies, and friendly? I think so. Yeah. My buddy Randall Thor, I think, and we did it with all my friends. I think he had the best one ever. If you had to just give one adjective to me obsessive and the reason i mention it is vertigo is one of the great films about obsession and it's about jimmy stewart uh who's just madly in love with this woman ty burr the brilliant film critic formerly of entertainment weekly now boston globe said if there's ever been a better movie about a man in love i've never seen it jimmy stewart was known for always playing these nice guys and idealistic roles but it's very dark in vertigo he's in love with this woman he loses her then sees a woman that he believes is just like her, and then remolds her and recasts her as the woman that he lost. And this is such a pertinent film because it was a lot of Hitchcock's own obsessions and the fact that he was always directing and manipulating the women in his life. He often referred to actors as cattle. Like the more important thing is the set decoration and the camera angles and the composition and the script, and the actors are just cattle. I just move them around and tell them where to go. There's a scene in there he tells about Montgomery Clift. He goes, just walk out of here and look up. And Montgomery Clift, who was a very good actor, started to complain. Well, I don't understand. What would I be looking at? Why would I be looking at? Just listen. Just your cattle. I'm the, I'm the director. I'm the genius. Just do what I say. And unfortunately, sometimes actors didn't like that kind of superiority. But Hitchcock was a genius. And if I was an actor, I'd do whatever he'd tell me to do. And Scorsese talks about Vertigo and the, the famous scene where uh, she comes out and, and it, she's not perfectly done up the way that she should be. And Jimmy Stewart goes, oh, the hair is all wrong. you got to go back. And then when she comes out, the look on Jimmy Stewart's face, I mean, it's one of the most impactful scenes you'll ever see in cinematic history. This guy who's just going through so much mourning, and now he thinks that he has that woman back. Scorsese, too, as always, is, is encyclopedic. He mentions the shot composition, a film called Topaz, which is often forgotten with Hitchcock. Uh, the character's being inter interrogated, and at one point, the character looks up, and Scorsese goes, look at, look at the way he had the camera. He had it perfectly framed so you couldn't see the character's eyes. So when he looks up, he goes, you can't see how shifty-eyed he is. And he goes, that's how subtle the camera movement is. Scorsese also talked about Psycho, and everyone mentioned Psycho is the shower scene. And Hitchcock mentioned it was like 70 different setups. It took like a week to shoot. And he said, you know, part of it was showing her breasts, so I had to do it. was so careful how I did it. I did it for the censors. And... Scorsese goes, again, that's, that's an intricately edited sequence. And he goes, he, he had to be obsessed with the storyboarding and all the shot composition. He goes, but the scenes of him driving are amazing. Because he goes, the driving, it's like he goes, you have the steering wheel in there as well. You have some of the background. You have the face. But like the way that they're actually set up, like you could teach a class in the way that Hitchcock would set up his shots. Not the tracking shots, the actual establishing shots and medium shots and how they create tension. And Psycho is so bold because you had the female character, the heroine, who gets killed a third of the way. In th and you go, what? Like Peter Bogdanovich, who is also a film scholar and a director of note, 
He said, when you watched it in the theater, it, it, that shower scene, it was not one scream. It, it wasn't like, ah, it goes, it was like, ah, and he goes, they, they couldn't take it. It was like a long gasp, like over a minute because people were terrified. Like she's the star of the film and she's getting knifed to death right now. That unbelievable music. Uh, Bernard Herman with that score, just so chilling. I mean, you, 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 you did not see that coming uh, at that time. And you can't say enough about Hitchcock, his influence upon cinema. What a genius he was. Some other films, I, you know, Psycho and Vertigo get a lot of play. I love Notorious, really good film. Claude Rains is in that. Um, Cary Grant as well, a really good one. I love Strangers on a Train, which inspired uh, Denny DeVito's film, Throw Mama from the Train, because that also has that famous scene, You Do My Murder, I Do Yours, Criss Cross. But you can go back and watch Hitchcock all day. I mean, he's one of those directors for rewatchability. It's amazing how good Hitch was. Recently celebrated a birthday. It was last week. But uh, if you're a real cinephile, if you love movies and movie history, you'll get geeked out as I was for Hitchcock Truffaut, which I'm giving four Maple Leafs as my highest recommendation. To recap, Suicide Squad gets one Maple Leaf. It's an absolute dud. So believe all the negative press you've been reading about that. Everybody wants some. Light, breezy, effortless, two and a half. You like Linklater in baseball, you're in. I say it's two Maple Leafs only if you have kids, only if you're looking to just waste some time. The humanity's getting to you, and you like some colorful animation and Dennis Leary's voice work and John Leguizamo. You three stars, gorgeous cinematography, Michael Caine, Harvey Keitel, masterclass in acting on an actor looking back at his life, and Hitchcock Truffaut, four Maple Leafs. Actor Showcase. So we've been dealing with, I think, is a fair criticism of the podcast, which is a little male-centric. Me and Stan's a couple of guys, and I love crime movies and Scorsese stories, and you know, hey, lighten up a little bit. Hey, give the women some do here. So fair enough. Stan's throwing out Meryl Streep. We have a living legend, actor showcase, five greatest films, not making the cut. The Iron Lady, which she won an Oscar for, but I, I got to tell you, Stan's Iron Lady is in right there with Lincoln, where you go, you watched it. I don't think it's as good as Lincoln either. I think you, you watch Lincoln, you go, that was a great film, then you'll never see it again. Iron Lady and Notch Blow, good film. Meryl's very good. When you look back years from now, she won an Oscar for that. Maybe it was just a light year. But you have zero desire ever to watch the story of Margaret Thatcher again. Like, there's no way. So, Iron Lady, she won an Oscar. Does not make the cut. Devil Wears Prada. I know people are going to say, where is that? That's not making the cut here. Bridges of Madison County, I really liked a lot. Her and Clinton Eastwood, that did not make the cut. Number five is adaptation. Hilarious in the movie. And this is why I had a friend of mine. He was like, yeah, I don't get the obsession with Meryl Streep. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, who doesn't like Meryl Streep? He's like, yeah, it's always the same stuff. I'm like, go watch Adaptation. How many actresses would be that good in that role? Because it's about Nick Cage playing this conflicted screenwriter, and he's hilarious in it, playing two roles. Chris Cooper won an Oscar for it. But Meryl Streep, in many ways, is like the window to the soul of Chris Cooper because he's the one that you feel sympathetic towards and the loss that he's overcome. And Streep's the one who is the writer who gets mesmerized by him and is seduced by him. And, I mean, there's just moments of it that are pure Meryl Streep magic. The scene where she gets high for the first time, and she's so excited about the phone ring. She's like, look at this. And she does that giggling laugh. Like, nobody else can do that as well as Meryl Streep. Number four is One True Thing, most underrated film. Meryl Streep's an actress who is known for always doing different accents and disappearing into her character. Well, what I loved about One True Thing, Carl Franklin's film in 1998, was the fact that she played... A character who does not have an accent. She's an American woman. Uh, she's dealing with cancer and her diagnosis. And there's some heart-wrenching scenes. Uh, William Hurt's also in it as well. There's one scene where she's in the bathtub and she's just she's lost her hair and she's so helpless. And if you know anybody who's, who's battled cancer, if you've seen it firsthand, it's a really tough scene to watch. But she's amazing in one true thing. I think it's under the radar. Number three is Doubt. I love that film. Philip Seymour Hoffman is in it as well. 
she plays the villain, but the more you watch it, and I've seen it a few times, Meryl's so good, she's really sympathetic because it feels like she's just far too aggressive towards Philip Seymour Hoffman and has a vendetta against this guy and is convinced that he's this pedophilic priest and that maybe she's a little bit misguided because it seems like he has a good heart. But the more you watch it, you see how Streep has uh, shades to it and why uh, her character has such conviction and also the humor in it. There's there's one scene where Seymour Hoffman is just screaming at her and then the, and then the light goes off because of the storm outside. She goes, well, look at that. You blew out my bulb. And like there's, there's some, some fantastic humor that only Meryl Streep could provide in a film that's really serious and very dramatic. Number two is Kramer versus Kramer. How to get it in there. Stanzik loves it. Um, again, unsympathetic character, right? It should be about Dustin Hoffman and how you believe that this guy should be taking care of his son, the rightful owner, and she's the shrew and she's the villainous. But she gives a wonderful speech at the end about why, no, he's my son. Like, I'm his mother. Like, there's nobody else that can do that but me. And this is what I was going through in my life. But don't judge me because you don't know what I've been through. And I still love my son even if I needed time away from him and so on and so forth. And what really makes it is that beautiful last scene because her and Hoffman, it's too much to believe that there's any reconciliation. But he tells her that she looks great. And as the elevator door closes, she goes, really? And it's, it's so well done by Meryl because she just has that slight bit of yearning. And that's how the movie ends. It would have been too much, obviously, for them to get back together. And it's a little bit too harsh to have them still hating each other. But the way she gives it really, it's a really sweet, uh, gentle move. By the way, behind the scenes stories of Kramer versus Kramer, Hoffman, just an absolute rank individual. <laughs> What he would do, again, back to the method acting, just to get her goat a little bit, because, again, he believes, like, if our characters don't get along, we're not going to get along offset. John Cazale, who uh, famously played Fredo, was amazing in The Deer Hunter, was uh, with Meryl Streep before he passed away. So on the set, there's one scene that Meryl has to get really mad at Dustin Hoffman, and Hoffman started goading her about John Cazale's death. Like, I read that story, and I'm like, define goading like what does that mean like you're responsible for his death and you're never going to have someone else like that and the way i read the story was like yeah he was he was taunting her and and it should be noted this death was like very recent it wasn't like oh he died 15 years earlier it was like months right and then they started shooting this film and he was quote goading her and taunting her about it believe there's a vanity fair article if you look it up kramer versus kramer it's it's, you won't look at Dustin Hoffman the same you're like man i appreciate the dedication to acting but i don't think he needed to go to that level of like, like she, furious, probably she hated him on set, couldn't stand him. Which Hoffman was like, "No, we got the reaction we wanted." And I'm like, "I, I don't know, man. Let's, can't wait for that Kramer versus Kramer reunion tour." And uh, number one is Sophie's Choice. It's uh, incredibly powerful. Um, a woman dealing with the Holocaust, and and there's just so much emotion there swept up in it. it what happens sometimes with these movies is that. They end up becoming a stereotype or shorthand for jokes and punchlines, right? Like someone will say something silly, like, oh, well, that's like Sophie's Choice. Like they can't decide something. But if you've actually seen the film. It's it's what Sophie's Choice is about is having to choose between which child's going to die in the Holocaust. Like it's as, it's as uh, mind-numbing a thought as you can get. And in terms of that prototypical role of Meryl Streep disappearing into character and having the accent, well, Sophie's Choice, you can't find a better example of that. Florence Foster Jenkins, her new film, which is getting very good buzz. So this is timely that we're mentioning Meryl Streep. I'll have to watch that at some point. But getting good reviews. Apparently Hugh Grant is fantastic in the movie. Maybe even some Oscar buzz for Hugh Grant, which is he's never been nominated before. So Meryl Streep, uh, Dancing at Lunasa, not making the cut. But number one is Sophie's Choice, followed by Kramer versus Kramer, Doubt, One True Thing, and Adaptation. Streaming suggestions. 
Right now on HBO Now, check out The Aviator. Great Martin Scorsese film came out in 2004, went head-to-head with Million Dollar Baby at the Oscars, and The Aviator did well, but ultimately it was Million Dollar Baby, that one best picture, which I think was the right move. Million Dollar Baby is one of my favorite movies. But The Aviator, for a guy who's so obsessed with filmmaking and the craft of filmmaking, Aviator is the first Marty movie where you actually see a director – in action, because DiCaprio plays Howard Hughes, and at one point he was obsessed with movie making. So it was really cool to see a director who loves film so much, who's so passionate about it, shooting a guy who's making Hell's Angels and the recreation of that era. There's a couple of set pieces that are stunning. One is that destruction. If you go back and watch again the scene where Hughes is horribly scarred and suffers that terrible accident, amazing. You want virtuoso filmmaking. That that whole sequence is amazing. Good supporting cast, too. You got Alan Alda, who's mocking him with the OCD, purposely putting his fingerprint on the cup. Uh, a lot of really good actors. Now, Catherine Hep- uh, sorry, Catherine Hepburn is who the character is, but Kate Blanchett won an Oscar playing Catherine. All right, okay, Howard. Howard Hughes. I think everybody can do a Catherine Hepburn impression. It's just a lot of that. All right. Okay, Sanzek. I see what you're saying. Aviator, check it out. Capote right now with Philip Seymour Hoffman. You know, he's one of my favorite actors, and I miss him so much, but Capote's actually not one of my favorite movies. I liked it, and I think he's great in it, but it's not a film that is conducive to rewatchability. Like, I think once you see it, you see it, and he, again, disappears into the character and is totally immersed, the high voice, lost some weight, had to fit into those really kind of tight-fitting suits, but... I don't know about you, Stancy. Capote's not one of those, like, i got to pop in Capote, as great as I love him. Just read the book, In Cold Blood. I was going to say, Faithful Adaptation? It's okay. But the well, movie's... Yeah, it's, you know, the book's better. Yeah, but the... it's not a travesty, what they did with the movie. Right. The book is definitely a classic, though. You're right about that. Carlito's Way, I just saw it actually the other day on HBO, so I watched some of the scenes again. <laughs> it doesn't really hold up. Like, it's the first way that I fell in love with Pacino with. Because uh, I was born in 78, Carlito's Way was 93. So yeah, I was right about 14, 15 in high school. Um, so that was the first one that I'm like, oh my God, this guy's the best. So when I went back and watched it, there's some cartoonish scenes and some of the dialogue's a little silly. And Pacino's a little over the top. It was right after he got the Oscar for Lieutenant Colonel Frank Slade. And I remember, I think it was Siskel who was like, yeah, he's, he's acting in his voice, a little reminiscent of the Colonel because he's so broad at times. But there are some good scenes. Uh, Sean Penn is mesmerizing as Davy Kleinfeld. Tragic comic performance. And what De Palma's always good at is when he strips away the dialogue. Like, let's just forget the story and let's just go with camera angles and the kinetic action. No matter what, watch the last 12 minutes of Carlito's Way, that whole sequence in the Grand Central Station and that chase, awesome. There's also a great scene in the pool hall. Watch those two scenes, no matter what, of Carlito's Way, and you'll be probably inspired to watch the rest of it. Charlie Wilson's War, speaking of uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, I recorded it again on HBO the other day, just forwarded through just to watch his scenes. The movie's very average, which is surprising. you got Tom Hanks starring, Mike Nichols directing, Julia Roberts is in the film, but the best part of the movie is Philip Seymour Hoffman. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. His first scene where he goes crazy, and it's John Slattery, actually, from Mad Men, uh, playing this guy, Gust, who's very profane and just irate for that alone you should watch that and the theory of everything normally we like to recommend films here on the podcast might be Stanzik, one of the most overrated films of the last five years like it was a paint by numbers biopic like if you're like hmm what's the stephen hawking story going to be I'm like that's theory of everything there's zero surprises in that film it is utterly predictable right there the fact that he won an oscar for it i'm like eddie redmayne's performance was fine it was totally adequate it's like a bunch of mannerisms and it's essentially an impersonation, but there's no depth to it. There's no soul to it. There's no substance. There's not one scene in that movie that you go, oh, I didn't see that one coming. There's nothing that's memorable about that movie. Here's what bothered me. They they broadcast it as this love story, and I believe it was based on a book written by his ex-wife. Correct. That's my point. They got divorced. <laughs> it wasn't a love story. 
Yeah, when that really bothered me. And, right. And he married the, the nanny, right? Correct. This was, isn't a love, just story. a love story. Right. This isn't a love story at all. And like the brilliance of Hawking, if you know people who are really into this world, like there's so much more to his life than watching that. Go watch A Brief History of Time instead, the documentary based on his book. That's much more fascinating and I think a much better tribute to Stephen Hawking's life. Actors in three words. It's all about branding here. Stanzik pointing We have to have the staples of the show. I don't care how many guests we got. We got two guests. We got zero guests. We're doing three words. Who do we got? Well, you're lucky I planned on doing this because we're supposed to have three guests, and now we have zero, so we're really banking on this. Thanks a lot, Cuba Gooding Jr. Uh, three words for the newly 26-year-old Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah, just had a birthday. Same birthday as Ben Affleck, who turned 44. First one is It Girl. Like, everything she touches turns to gold. I mean, you, you remember Jennifer Lawrence in the movie? It's going to make a lot of money. She's going to get an Oscar nomination. She's going to look great. People are going to love it. It Girl is the first one. The number two, though, is Backlash, because 26 years old, has already been nominated four times for Oscars. Like, I think you're going to feel a little bit of a backlash, if not from fans or necessarily other actors. But the critics, I think, are going to start to go, hang on a second. Is this a little too much too soon? Like, sometimes we start to reward these actors, and along with the it girl comes the inevitable backlash. Third word is sassy. Uh, she's just got a little bit of spunk to her, and I like that. I think on and off screen. Next, we'll do Matt Damon, who I saw a story yesterday. He has a man bun going right now. I'm not sure if you've seen this. Yeah, that's that's – I mean – we, our boy Saruti is a man, but I think certain guys can pull it off. Damon Lang a little old for the man, but I'm not a big fan of that. I find him to be brawny. When I think of Matt Damon, I just, he's, you know, he's really muscular, he's brawny. But also with the brawny comes the fact that I think he's brainy. A lot of the movies that he does, like The Martian is a good example of a guy who's cerebral. So I think of Matt Damon, I go brawny, brainy, and I think of Affleck. I picture the two of them you know, as, as broing it out when they won the Oscar for Goodwill Hunting. Those two are inseparable. Renee Zellweger. Uh <laughs> The first one here is Jim Carrey, because Jim Carrey and her were together at one point, and after they broke up, I, I'm hoping it was on reasonably good terms, but Carrey drew comic relief from their breakup. He was like, yeah, every time I look at her, I couldn't understand her, because she's always squinting. So the other word is squinting. I, the first word is Carrey, the second word is squinting, and the third word is uh, plastic surgery, because she's obsessed with the fact that she's on this uh, crusade right now about how women are being judged in the media and the fact that, you know, they shouldn't be so objectified, women shouldn't be. But she's clearly got plastic surgery done, and this is in reference to people saying, why would you do that? You're a beautiful woman, and now you've did all the scarring to your face. Like, you're clearly trying to be younger, which is interesting because she's known so well for Bridget Jones's diary, a woman who's trying to overcome her superficiality, and then she went out and go ahead and got plastic surgery. So, Carrie squinting plastic surgery. Next time you work with Danny Cannell, he was obsessed with her. He has some good stories about meeting her, and I think he was really nervous, but next time you talk to him, please ask. Okay, I will. And Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, because I liked him so much in Nightcrawler, the first word that comes to mind is creepy. I think he's a... I don't think as a guy he is necessarily, but his, his movies, I always found him to be a really creepy guy, and he deals with that acting well. I found him to be earnest. He was on SportsCenter in L.A. one time, and he seems like one of those guys who is genuine, sincere when he's talking, so I found him to be earnest. And also the third word is sister. I always think of Maggie Gyllenhaal every time I think of Jake Gyllenhaal, which I like Maggie Gyllenhaal, but I don't like generally the brother-sister tandem, particularly John Cusack, who I like, but I don't like Joan Cusack at all. So I always – I find my, my stature and appreciation for John Cusack diminished and diluted because of Joan Cusack. I'm anti-Maggie just because we went from Katie Holmes to her in the Batman movies. Yeah, that's a huge drop-off. That's off. a drop-off. Uh, lastly, Natalie Portman. First one is chilling, just because I think of Black Swan. She was outstanding in that film. I mean, just Polanski-esque directing from Darren Aronofsky. And 
That story, I mean, you talk about superior psychological thrillers of the last decade. I put Black Swan right up there. The artistry and, and, and Portman just so emotionally fragile. And then when you see the dark side, chilling in that film. Another word is fetching. You know, the big eyes, obviously, she's very pretty. And number three is hiatus. I haven't seen a lot of her lately. Natalie Portman was making a lot of movies. I kind of feel like she's gone on hiatus for a while. Well, she was pregnant and had a child. No, I understand that there's a reason she's been away. But I think it was the the choreographer from Black Swan. That's correct. Very good. Stanzik up on his people. Big Natalie Portman fan. (laughs) That's all it is. Yeah, but I'd like to see her come roaring back to life. Also, I I think of her uh, in that movie Closer where she played the stripper. And Clive Owen's like just confessing all of his sins to her. Yeah, she's a good actress. I like that one. Natalie Portman. Three words. Jennifer Lawrence, Matt Damon, Renee Zellweger, Jake Gyllenhaal, Natalie Portman. As always, you can tweet us. Give us your suggestions, who you want us to discuss in three words. A Scorsese story. That Cutler's a good voice guy, man. Like, he really nails that. I got to be honest. My dream, one of my many dreams, is just to be a voice guy. Like, I, I would love to just quit sports casting and I'd just be... Avoid all day, get a little studio in my house, and just a Scorsese story. But I mean, that he is good, man. That is a good read on that. Um, I've talked previously about Mean Streets. That was so important in Scorsese's career. It really put him on the map. Pauline Kael, the very influential film critic, loved the movie, uh, as did Roger Ebert. And the, the motivation for that was John Cassavetes, uh, one of his mentors, had told him after he saw Boxcar Bertha, you know, it's a pile of crap. You just wasted your life. Go make something from your heart. Go make something with passion, which resulted in Mean Streets. So after he makes this film about a bunch of Italian-Americans, semi-autobiographical, involved in crime, I got to do something different. So his agent and his manager said, well, you know what? You got to try something new. You don't want to just be typecast as this. So Ellen Burstyn, who's a really good actress, had a film called Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. She's looking for a director. And somebody said, well, you should go talk to this guy, Martin Scorsese. He's this young director. And she goes, okay, I haven't heard of him. She goes and sees Mean Streets. She goes, oh, my God, this movie's great. i got to meet this guy. And she starts talking to Scorsese. And early on, Marty confesses. He goes, I've got to be honest. I don't know anything about women. I grew up, just me and my brother. I had terrible asthma. I was just always in my house. I watched a ton of movies. Um, you know, my dad and I would hang out a bit. We'd take me to the movies. Me and my mom would make pasta together. And that's it. I don't know anything about women. Scorsese goes, I don't, I didn't hang with women. I got no girlfriends. Like I got nothing. It's just me and a bunch of guys. Mean streets. That's what you get. Like, this is why in fact, now when you look at Marty's movies, like, yeah, there's not often a very strong female element because that's just the way his life was. So what he followed it up with, which is what I would have said too. I cause person's like, can you make this film? Like it's a really female empowerment film. It's about a single mom trying to overcome. And when I want to feel sorry for her, she's a very strong, resilient character. Women's live movement here, mid seventies. And Scorsese says, he said, I don't know anything about women, but I'm willing to try. And I think that's a very good lesson. Sometimes when you go out of your comfort zone, you go, I don't know if I can do this, but I'm going to do my best. And it's actually a good movie. If you go back and watch it, it's, it's atypical in his career, uh, which you so much identify with these mob films and crime films, but Alice doesn't live for anymore. It's a good film because of the acting. And Alan Burstyn's the star of it. She won an Oscar for it, which proves how good Scorsese is with actors. I mean, again, he took subject matter that he's not familiar with. Single mom raising her son, and he gets her an Oscar for it. Chris Christopherson's in the movie. He's pretty good well as one of the romantic leads. One of those movies I've seen it once. I'd never watch it again, but I liked it because it's part of his filmography. It was important in his transgression, and I think he put enough of his own personal elements in it uh, to make it memorable as well. Once again, we got to find out who sent me this uh, Scorsese coffee table book by Tom Schoen. It's amazing. We're guessing Rosillo, but maybe the publisher, maybe they heard about Scorsese's stories and was like, we got to send this guy a book? I think that's a stretch. (laughs) All right, we're going to get to the bottom of this. Thank you so much for downloading Cinephile. Please remember to subscribe and tell all your friends to do so. Until next time, we've got a huge guest coming up. Fingers crossed it's going to happen. But I'm talking as big as it gets. 
Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.